You are listening to the Oddities of Violence podcast, a podcast about ideas and events from the margins of terrorism, genocide, and the philosophy of violence. This podcast is recorded at the CJSW 90.9 FM studios at the University of Calgary in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, located on the traditional territories of the people of the Treaty 7 region in southern Alberta, which includes the Blackfoot Confederacy, comprised of the Siskika, Bikani, and Gaina First Nations, as well as the Sutina First Nation and the Stony Nakoda, including the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations. The city of Calgary is also home to Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Your hosts are Gavin Cameron, Josh Goldstein, and Maureen Hebert. We're all on faculty here in the Department of Political Science. And just a caution before we get started, this podcast is for a mature audience and deals with topics, commentary, and depictions of events that some listeners may find difficult or distressing. Hello, welcome everyone to the Oddities of Violence podcast. I'm your host, Maureen Hebert. I'm joined in the CJSW studios as usual with my friends and co-hosts, Gavin Cameron. Hi, Gavin. Hi, Maureen. And Josh Goldstein. Hi, Josh. Hey, Maureen. Hi, Gavin. Great to be with you again for the next installment in our examination of the Oddities of Violence. In this episode, we're probing the margins of genocide in the 1970s in Cambodia, then called Democratic Kampuchea under the Communist Party of Kampuchea, better known as the Khmer Rouge. Today we'll be talking about the relationship between revolution and genocide, and how genocides can be programs of omission, of letting the victims die, and not always necessarily intentional acts of group destruction. Joining us is one of our Oddities of Violence workshop contributors, James Tyner. James is Professor of Geography at Kent State University in Ohio, USA, and a Fellow of the American Association of Geographers. He holds a PhD in Geography from the University of Southern California and is the author of more than 20 books, including War, Violence, and Population, Making the Body Count, which received the AAG Meridian Book Award for Outstanding Scholarly Work in Geography. James is also the author of numerous articles and book chapters, and his other honours include the AAG Glenda Laws Award, which recognises outstanding contributions to geographic research on social issues and social justice. His research interests centre on violence, genocide, and political economy. Hello, Jim. Hello. Honoured to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. You know, the Cambodian genocide for me has is such an odd case in just so, so many ways. I'm really looking forward to trying to get to grips with it. So in a moment, we'll get to Cambodia. But first, let's talk a bit about your own academic journey. For those in the audience who are familiar with the study of genocide, most scholars in the field are not geographers. They're typically historians, sociologists, anthropologists, social psychologists, or political scientists like me. Talk a little bit about what initially interested you in geography as an academic discipline and how you became a genocide studies scholar looking at the Cambodian case as a geographer. Yes, well, my, my, my path is actually a little bit of an odd one anyways. Um, I actually began my university training as a creative writing major. And I began taking geography classes in part in a way to add a, a sense of realism to my stories. Uh, more academically, though, you know, what geography has to offer is uh, really rooted in its origins as an academic discipline. So on the one hand, there has always been within geography an emphasis on human environmental interactions. So even if you're a so-called physical geographer or a human geographer, you're always sensitive to the interactions between human and environment or nature and society. But the other one is that geography for me is really uh, an, an approach, a, a way of, uh, of looking at, at, at problems. Um, and what I mean by this is that uh, it, it's not so much a subject you know, where you like economists or biologists, but it's really a way of looking at things. And that centers on questions of spatial distributions. You know, why are things located where they are? What accounts for that distribution? And what are the, uh, the consequences of those patternings? And from that, particularly coming at it from the more human side, we're really interested in the social organization of space. And so 
you know, we can ask in, say, the a North American context, you know, where are cities located? Why are they located there? Uh, where are uh, shopping centers located? Well, you can easily apply this to questions, you know, where are mass graves located? Where are prisons located? And you know, what is the logic or the, the rationale behind that patterning? And so, you know, my work on the Cambodian genocide actually emerged out of a, a longer concern of questions of social justice, oppression, and particularly mass violence. And you know, as I began to address more and more what was happening in Cambodia, you know, there was a disconnect between some of the historical interpretations of the genocide and the questions that I as a geographer would answer or would, would ask in a, in a sense, you know, why were these located? How did this trans uh, come about? And, you know, there, there just wasn't that a satisfactory answer that, um, you know, would align with the way that I was approaching it. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. And that kind of clarifies for me the the kind of geographer's perspective in this particular case, I think, is really, really valuable. So by way of background for our listeners, um, let's start with a, just a small question, uh, a brief history of Cambodia from the pre-colonial through the French colonial period and then independence in the 1950s and 60s prior to the rise of the Khmer Rouge. So I know this spans many hundreds of years. So this is just really a kind of 30,000 feet summary to kind of orient the listeners to you know, where Cambodia is, briefly what its history was about, and what it was like just before the Khmer Rouge come to power? Well, I think it, it's a very broad question, but it's probably one of the most important questions there is. Because, you know, too often when we try to approach something like the, the Cambodian genocide, uh, we, we think about it, oh, okay, it happened 1975 to 1979. But it immediately begs the question, what happened you know, before 1975. And okay, well, we need to talk about the Civil War. Well, how do you understand the Civil War without understanding the post-independence period? And of course, you can't understand post-independence without understanding colonialism. So you keep going back and back, just trying to answer the present question there. So in a nutshell, though, how can we come to grips with this, you know, centuries-long history and why it is so vitally important understanding the genocide itself? And I think that there's two things that really stand out. One of them is to understand the basic ordinary life of of the men and women in Cambodia, whether we're talking about the uh, the, the the 8th century AD, we're talking about this, the 17th century, or we're talking about the 20th century. What were people doing? You know, it's an agrarian country. It was an agrarian country. So, you know, how did people go about their day-to-day -day lives? How did they farm? How did they fish? How did they trade? What types of practices were taking place? Now, there's a remarkable continuity over the centuries in terms of this day-to-day -day agrarian life. However, one of the crucial dimensions has been and always is, particularly in the broader context of thinking about revolutions and genocide, is the issue of land. And so you'd want to trace that relationship between the farmers and their land access to land, land possession, land ownership, and how those relations have changed over the centuries. On top of that is the critical role of, the, of colonialism. So, you know, the, the French, as they brought together these, these different uh, political entities in the 19th century into the 20th century, what's really important is understanding the way that the French colonists attempted to administer these overseas territories. French Indochina, as it was referred to, was actually composed of five distinct entities. They divided up. So you have Laos, you have Cambodia, but present-day Vietnam was divided up into three different administrative components, Tonkin in the north, Annam in the central, and Cochin China in the south. Now, why this is important, very briefly, is because 
the way that the French interacted with the agricultural productivity and how this transformed both urban and industrial practices in those five entities differed greatly. And that set up a very different social foundation. So the way that the Vietnamese, for example, responded in the South to French colonialism differed from the way that the Vietnamese in the North responded to French colonialism, and by extension, the way that the Cambodians responded to the French uh, during this time period. And so it's it really those larger socio-structural relations that you'd want to look at over this very long period of time and look for both continuities and discontinuities and ultimately how those will impact events of the 1950s, 60s, leading up to the genocide itself. I think that's a really good way of kind of accounting for the, the background conditions that, that give rise to the Khmer Rouge itself. So that's the next question I want to turn to. So listeners may have heard the name Pol Pot, the, the leader of the Khmer Rouge, largely because he's often said to be one of the biggest mass murderers of the 20th century, often mentioned alongside Hitler and Stalin. Could you tell us a bit about the founding of what would become the Communist Party of Kampuchea, aka the Khmer Rouge, and how they came to power in the long kind of 1960s and then the civil war in the 1970s? Yeah, this again is a very vital question. And it's one that uh, historians and other scholars continue to debate. Some of the facts are fairly well understood, but the interpretation is also different. I, I think the best way to, to, to start to understand this is that what ultimately emerges as the Khmer uh, Rouge, the Communist Party, is that it is founded in some of the very embryonic uh, nationalist movements. Now, as we indicated in the sort of very brief overview of, of Cambodia's pre-genocidal history here, events in Cambodia were very different than they were in Vietnam, for example. And in part, that had to do with the fact that you know most of the rank and file Cambodians still had access to their land. And so they didn't, they, they weren't as severely negatively affected as, as groups were elsewhere, not to diminish the impact of colonialism, but to, to stress that it was a very different system and a very different context. The fact that many of them still had access to land, now they may have been heavily in debt, but they still had access to land. And that somewhat tempered, or certainly this is David Chandler's argument, this somewhat tempered the revolutionary impulse that you saw elsewhere. That being said, there were a number of individuals uh, that were very strongly opposed to French colonialism. There were also a number of groups, individuals that were opposed to, say, the monarchy. And you know, as these groups were coming together, particularly during the Second World War, in opposition to the Japanese, who uh, you know, during the Second World War, uh, they emerge in the 1950s with very different agendas, very different objectives, and very different understandings of how to achieve whatever their goals might be. So you have some groups that were very clearly anti-colonial. You had other groups that were very clearly anti-monarchy. There were other groups that were very receptive to the ideals and the ideology of communism. Communism throughout much of Asia was a very influential doctrine in that it really explained some of the aspects of European colonialism, and it seemed to offer a way forward towards that. Now, when trying to understand also the emergence of the Communist Party in, in uh, Cambodia, it can't be separated from events that were happening, particularly in neighboring Vietnam. Because as the Vietnamese were undertaking their anti-colonial revolution to dislodge the French, they recognized, or they, they certainly 
uh, understood that their quest for independence and post-independence was going to be tied to whatever happened in Cambodia and Laos. Uh, for example, it makes no sense to defeat the French in Vietnam if the French remained in force in the neighboring territories. Therefore, the, the Vietnamese were making great overtures to the Cambodians to try to link together these movements. That sets up a very tension-filled relationship that carries through the 1950s and 1960s into the 1970s, and it further fragments these different movements that are trying to coalesce within Cambodia at the time. Because now the question becomes, okay, we can be anti-colonial. Do we work with the Vietnamese? Do we not work with the Vietnamese? We can be anti-monarchical. Do we work with the Vietnamese, not work with the Vietnamese? And so it isn't just simply these movements themselves, but as Cambodia achieves its independence and, and Sihanouk comes to power, you know, how are the Vietnamese in the north versus the south responding to Sihanouk? And by extension, then, how do the different groups within the communist movement in Cambodia respond to Sihanouk and to these others? So the geopolitics get very complex very quickly. But to bring this, this question sort of to a close, what ultimately happens as we move from the late 1950s into the 1960s is that one particular group of communists in the uh, in Cambodia really begin to take power and this is known as the Pol Pot faction. And there's a lot of ways that historians have understood this, and there's still a lot of questions that we don't understand about this time period. But basically, you have Pol Pot and, and some of his closest allies, his inner circle, they gradually take control of this party. Certainly by the time they come to power in 1975, they still don't have complete control over the party. This is what leads to a lot of the early purges in 1975 and 1976, as this faction of the Khmer Rouge tries to solidify their hold on power. Uh, but you, you really need to understand this as an internal power struggle. There was never a unified, coherent communist movement that you can easily trace from say the 1930s through the 1970s. It was never that clear cut. Exactly, exactly. In in your scholarship on the Cambodian genocide, you think that there has been a kind of crystallized standard view of the genocide that has been become common among scholars of, of this particular case. Could you tell us what that standard view is and why you think in whole or in part, it is largely incorrect. Yeah, so this argument comes from Michael Vickery, who uh, early on uh, warned against what he described as the standard total view. And unfortunately, I think that there's a number of misperceptions that surround our historical understanding of the Cambodian genocide. And uh, I, I think that this is a, a very important component in trying to, uh, to understand certainly the oddities of, of the, the, uh, the Cambodian genocide. And so there's, there, there's a few that I would like to, to, to call out. So on the one hand, or to begin with, there's this perception that the, the, the Khmer Rouge were anti-intellectual, that they were anti-technology, uh, that they wanted to bring the country or, or take the country back to the glory years of the Angkorian kingdom between the, the 8th and the 14th centuries or so. That wasn't the case. You know, what the Khmer Rouge were trying to do was very much a modernist project. They, they, they were not trying to go back in time. They were trying to move forward. Now, part of that has to do with their understanding of, of Marxism, Leninism, and so forth, which I hope to, to talk about a little bit later on. But, you know, 
one example that I'd like to talk about here is so the idea that they were say anti-technology. So you'll you'll read in some accounts that the Khmer Rouge, because they were opposed to technology, because they wanted to go back in time, refused to use modern equipment such as tractors. Well, that, that's not entirely the case because even many of the top officials of the Khmer Rouge, they addressed this during the time. You know, they were interviewed by uh, others of the Eastern Bloc. And, you know, they would look around and say, you know, what do we have a lot of? We have a lot of labor here. But, um, you know, if we were to utilize tractors, what happens with tractors? Well, first off, they break down. Where are you going to get parts? Second of all, tractors need fuel. How are you going to get the fuel? You know, it, it is not reliant, particularly on a country that is still at, at a very embryonic stage of, of uh, industrializing. You know, this should not come as any surprise, certainly not to development scholars. Uh, you know, when I was going to school, you know, I, I had an instructor who was talking about some of the activities that the uh, the UK was trying to do bringing development projects, modernity to uh, to sub-Saharan Africa. And they uh, were frustrated because they would you know take all of this international aid money, bring it into uh, to a, a country in in Africa. They would provide tractors and so forth. They would come back a year later to follow up and you know see how these sort of foreign induced, development projects played out and they, they when they returned the tractors were rusting in the fields right. and they were like why aren't you using the tractors aren't these wonderful development tools and the villagers were like well it broke down and we have no spare parts and that was exactly what the Khmer Rouge were saying at the time and again I'm not justifying the violence anymore sure, I'm just sure. saying yeah what we understood about the Khmer Rouge is not this sort of unique sort of mindless group, there, there was this sort of logic behind it. The concepts of self-reliance and self-determination came out of the non-aligned movement. Right. The committee exactly. groups aligned themselves squarely with third worldism and the non-aligned movement. And the idea behind self-reliance is we want to move away from these colonial entanglements. We don't want to be dependent upon these former colonial powers. We want to have our own autonomy. And that translates into their own economic sovereignty. And the dominant way that member states in the non-aligned movement understood economic sovereignty in the 1960s and 1970s was through import substitution. The idea behind import substitution is we can't compete with industrial powers. There was no way that Cambodia, Democratic Kampuchea was going to compete in shipbuilding with South Korea, for example. Right. So they draw upon, not Marx at this point, really, but they, they draw upon classical uh, economics. They draw on Adam Smith and David Ricardo, and they look around and say, what is our comparative advantage? Well, we're an agrarian country. We have land, we have water, we have labor. So what we can do is increase both intensively and extensively our agriculture. We can export that agriculture. In turn, we can bring in capital. We can use that to invest first in light industry and later on in heavy industry, import substitution. That was the economic rationale, at least from the beginning that the Khmer Rouge was trying to put into place. And that grounded economic understanding is largely lost with the standard total view when people just sort of regurgitate these pat phrases that the Khmer Rouge were anti-technology, anti-intellectual because they were uninformed Marxists. And now let's move on to the violence. You need to understand that political economic context first. Absolutely. I mean, everything you said, I I agree with and it's, it's appeared in some of my own work as well and of course it explains why on the Khmer Rouge crest on the flag in the far distance is a factory is a picture of a factory it's not a return to this kind of 
agrarian utopia of, of days gone by. So this basically brings us to the kind of heart of the argument that's part of the project you're doing with us. So talk a bit about your explanation of what you think is additionally odd and discordant, as you say, about the Cambodian case in relation to most other cases of genocide, particularly in the 20th century. And that is that the Khmer Rouge committed genocides of a genocide rather of omission rather than one of commission in which specific groups are deliberately targeted for extermination as happened in the Nazi Holocaust or Rwanda, for instance. So if you could talk a bit more about what the Khmer Rouge genocide of omission looked like and why did genocide take this form in Cambodia? Yes, and uh, I'd like to first make one one sort of caveat and and a second sort of comment as context for this. You know, the first one, again, um, try to identify the logic behind the Khmer Rouge violence is in no way meant to justify their violent practices. Yeah. Uh, We really need to make this clear. Uh, and, And the second thing is that there's, if you will, multiple layers of of the violence that took place. So, you know, if we can follow Galtung and just, you know, simply talk about direct violence versus structural violence, you know, direct violence, Mm -hmm. you know, we understand as, you know, shooting somebody, stabbing somebody, you know, physical violence there. Structural violence uh, is, you know, when we start looking, obviously, then at various structures. So, for example, if you have no access to health care, if you are denied food, you know, those are structural relations, and they are a form of violence because they can lead to injury, harm, death, and so forth like that. A very difficult problem in trying to understand both physical and structural violence, killing and letting die in the Cambodian genocide, is in part related to our incomplete understanding of the magnitude of the mass violence slash genocide. In other words, how many people died? Okay, the typical answer is about 1.7 million people died during the genocide. Unfortunately, we don't quite know. And this goes back to some of Vickery's early concerns because when we say 1.7 million, and, and there's been a lot of demographic reconstructions trying to come up with this figure, the fact is there wasn't a regular census, and certainly the Khmer Rouge wasn't keeping a survey of, of, of all the right. people that were killing them. And the, you know, as we indicated earlier, the violence didn't begin when the Khmer Rouge come to power April 17, 1975. The killings began years earlier. The killings began in large part with the the so-called civil war and particularly the intensive U.S. bombing of Cambodia during that time period. How many people died during that time period? We don't know. You know, how many of those are attributed to the 1.7 and, you know, we, we... claim that the Khmer Rouge did that, but how many of them happened before that? And also by extension, people continued to die after the Khmer Rouge uh, were removed from power in 1975. How many people continued to die there? So we don't know how many died directly at the hands of the Khmer Rouge. Of those, even if we were to assume that it was all 1.7 million, of those, we don't know how many of them died through direct means? They were actually killed, tortured, and so forth. How many died because of neglect, disease, famine, and so forth? Now, unfortunately, you know, to the victims, you know, that may not make a difference. As a historical understanding, it does make a difference because it also then contributes into how we interpret the genocide and what lessons we can take from that in looking at other situations. Uh, So again, we don't want to minimize the loss of life there, but we don't really know. Was it 50-50? 50% were were killed? 50% were let die? Was it 30-70? Regardless, what are we actually talking about? I think that's the heart of this question here. 
when the Khmer Rouge come to power in 1975, you know, what I think is most important to understand at this point and how these sort of oddities of this come into play is the relationship between violence, war, and genocide. Now, of course, genocide scholars have looked at these relations for a long time. And what's important about the Cambodian situation is that when the Khmer Rouge come to power, from their perspective, the war was over. The revolution was over. Now we can talk about sort of Marxist, Leninist, Maoist rhetoric about, you know, ongoing revolutions and so forth. But the war itself was over. They claimed victory. They claimed victory over, well, over a lot of people there. So we need to understand Khmer Rouge practices from April 1975 onward in the context of post-conflict reconstruction. They were trying to reconstruct their country at that point. Now, for five years, the country was engaged in a very brutal, very bloody civil war. There was famine throughout the country at that time. Makeshift refugee camps were set up at the time. The infrastructure was largely uh, destroyed. Bridges, roads, airfields, uh, ports, uh, the the economic activities, the agricultural production had come largely to a standstill. The country was in dire straits in 1975. And the Khmer Rouge, when they come to power, are looking around saying, what can we do? We send the people out into the fields and we force them to produce. We need them to to uh, restart agriculture, restart the uh, the infrastructure, rebuild the infrastructure so that we can start to gain capital so we can build up our industry. And so in that sense, much of their practices are what we would refer to as, you know conceptually as trying to make life. they're They're trying to bring this country out of its past devastation and to rebuild it. Well, unfortunately, what happened is that um, there were a number of contradictions within their own policies. Number one, uh, which we may be able to get into at, at a later point, has to do with the idea of currency. You know, they didn't abolish currency. Strictly speaking, they temporarily suspended currency. And there's a long sort of genealogy behind the, the role of currency in a Marxist revolution. But the fact that they eliminated or, or uh, suspended currency, if, if you think about it logically, if you're going to suspend currency, and we think of money then, how are you going to generate capital that you can then invest? And I think that they basically put in place a hybrid economy where domestically we have a more sort of barter type of economy or state controlled uh, you know, economy, if you will, there. Uh, but at the international level, as they were exporting rice to gain capital, to reinvest into industry, they substituted currency with food rations. Right. So basically you, you, basically you, you replace money with rice. Now, at one level, and you can see this in their four-year plan and various other documents, at one level, you can see the logic behind this. Okay, we are going to eliminate currency, so that gets away from all of those evils that we associate with capitalism, but we still need to make profit. And so how are we going to do that? We're going to control the distribution of rice within the country. We're then going to use that rice to convert into currency at the international level. Well. On the ground, what happens, though, is that every time a person eats rice, you're literally eating into your profit margin. Exactly, exactly. That is literally a fatal contradiction. Uh, but that also then accounts for what they were trying to do. They, they, they needed to export more rice to generate more revenue. 
but they needed to restrict the amount of rice that is being consumed. And so that sets the foundations for the subsequent famine that transpires under the Khmer Rouge. Yeah. So, and so unfortunately, what's happening at this time is that, you know, on, on the one hand, the Khmer Rouge is, is trying to rebuild the country after a devastating war and increase rice production and, and rebuild the infrastructure. And yet they put in place these fatal contradictions where people are actually worse off than before. And so as they are trying to make life, they're actually letting people die because they're aware of the people that are starving. And yet they are willing to sacrifice those lives for these larger economic objectives that they're trying to satisfy. I think this brings us to kind of a little segue I'd like to make here to kind of broaden the discussion out a little bit. And I know Josh wants to ask some questions about the Khmer Rouge imaginary. So we'll, he'll have a few questions there. And then in the last part, we'll talk or we'll move to uh, Gavin, a few questions about the larger international context that we kind of started talking about before. So Josh, you want to go ahead with yours? Sure. Great. Thanks, Jim. This is a, just a really fascinating uh, discussion of the way the Khmer Rouge puts in place the conditions that produce this, this genocide through, through famine. And what I find as a political philosopher really interesting is not just your emphasis on the practical or strategic decisions that the Khmer Rouge are making in a post-conflict uh, society, the needs to reconstruct the, uh, the infrastructure of, of existence, but also, as you said, this attempt to, to make sense of the logic behind the Khmer Rouge thinking. So there's not just strategic or tactical decisions. There's an actual way that they think about themselves and think about the people and think about their, their community. As you had said uh, earlier in our conversation, look, they're not, they're not mindless. There's a logic behind it. And to grasp that logic doesn't mean to justify. It just means to do what we all try and do as as academics, as any thinking human being, try and make sense of what's of what's going on. So what what I want to do, I want to ask you about what you uh, have have called in your work this socio-geographic imagination, the way that the Khmer Rouge think about themselves. And so could you can you tell us a bit about that? How what what is the the content of it? What is that unique way that they see themselves and others and their community? So I, I think, you know, when we think very broadly about you know geographic imaginations, you know, this is again not unique to the Khmer Rouge. We can look to any government. Uh, you know, we can look at a government's national security strategies and uh, even something as mundane as a State of the Union address. These are all efforts of politicians, leaders, etc., to sort of forward their idea, their imagination of what their country should be. It is very much of a normative practice. Uh, you know, one of the, the, the projects that I've done in, in the study of the Cambodian genocide was to look at the interconnections of art and politics. And so particularly Khmer Rouge's poetry, their songs, and photography, as it was reflected in, in the magazines that they, they distributed. And, you know, unlike some of the other research that looks at, uh, say, art and music in genocides and revolutions, I don't view this as just strictly propaganda. I think that it's an important key to understand you know, these geographical imaginations. This is what they were trying to present to their citizens, that this is what we want to be. And so if you take a look at their, their uh, imagery, you know, they, they have these, you know, songs and poems and photographs of this, in a word, utopia of what this sort of country should be. And this is what we're striving to achieve. And it is a land that is fruitful, a land that is 
uh, you know, bountiful. Uh, but it also is a very particular reading of how society should function. And again, we don't unfortunately have time to, to probe into to some of these issues. But when we talk about the role of the individual versus the family versus the collective, the Khmer Rouge had a very distinctive understanding of individuals and, and families and the collective and the nation itself. And it's manifest in these geographical imaginations, but it's more than just simply a representation of what their country should be because it provides the foundation for the subsequent policies and practices that they put into play. So again, we can connect this sort of discursive construction of a, a country they want to build with the actual concrete material practices, the violence itself, how that played out. And so it's that connection, I think, that we really want to try to understand. I think that's, I think that's really great. So how could, could you tell us, how would this self-presentation of what our nation should be, what our people should be, how would that have struck the everyday peasant in the in the rice field the uh citizens who move from the from the cities to the countryside would it have made sense to them would it have struck them as strange are there parts of it that made sense and others that didn't could you could you say a little bit about that yeah, that's a great question. And uh, I, I think that ultimately we'll be able to answer a lot of that by drawing upon you know, a lot of the oral histories conducted, uh, particularly by uh, DC CAM in, in Phnom Penh. So what's happening at this point is that it, it goes back to the Khmer Rouge's understanding of revolution and their recognition, which does draw on sort of Mao's understanding of Marxism and revolutions is that they, they recognized that the country itself wasn't ready for socialism. And so they had to, you know, in, in the vernacular, they had to build socialism. And, you know, a, a way of understanding building socialism is, is that we literally have to educate the people as to what socialism is, as the Khmer Rouge understood it, of course, and what this means for this future society that we're building towards. And so, yes, they, they put out all of these, these, these wonderful visions of plentiful food and, you know, healthy families and so forth. And yet the day-to-day -day reality is anything but that. You know, people are suffering, people are dying, and people are living in fear. And this is where it's all interconnected, of course, the, the structural violence and the physical violence. Because as people are recognizing that this vision that the Khmer Rouge are trying to bring to fruition, it's not to their advantage. They're dying. They're they're. They're, they're watching their loved ones die during this process. They're living in fear. There is resistance. And there was considerable resistance against the Khmer Rouge during this time period. Now, of course, that then feeds into the sort of letting die part of the inner circle of the Khmer Rouge. Because anytime that there was a problem, if they saw that there was uh, food shortages, uh, if quotas weren't met in terms of labor productivity, they blamed the people. And there was sufficient evidence among the people that they were not happy. Mm. And so you have this, you know, the, what, what happens at this time is that the Khmer Rouge increase their punishment. They increase the purges. They uh, increase the uh, arrests, detainment, tortures, and executions of people uh, to try to bring this about. And so we have this, this horrific downward spiral of society as it just begets more and more violence during the process here. And I think it all goes back to this disconnect between what the Khmer Rouge envisioned 
and what they were actually putting into place. And you know, the people knew this, they understood it. And in fact, a number of the ranking officials understood that as well. Now, of course, if they challenged it, they were then arrested and executed. They were purged from the party. Uh, so you you just had this, um, you know, at this point, probably by you know late 77, easily into 1978, you just have this downward spiral of bloodletting uh, until ultimately the Khmer Rouge implodes upon itself. Yeah, this is really, uh, I think it's a, a really interesting story in the way in which you have both a deep engagement with the land, with infrastructure, with a, a sense of building a real world and simultaneously a deep disconnect from that world and a living within a kind of imaginary and an inability to to escape it when when things, when reality doesn't correspond. So I think that's a, a really great account, Jim. Thanks. Jim, can I pick up on sort of your last answer about sort of how the, the, the famine is playing out and how the Camarouche are, are responding to it as it as it unfolds? Do, do you feel that that's sort of what moves this case into the realm of genocide? Because you 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 know there, there are a large number of cases historically where you have famines that are either caused or exacerbated by government action or inaction. And on one level, the story that you're telling could be interpreted as sort of economic incompetence. There's a degree of sort of Malthusian callousness. But we have lots, quite a lot of those examples without necessarily saying that it's genocide. So is it this additional element that in your mind sort of moves this into the realm of genocide? That's an important but difficult question. In part, it hinges on you know, the definition of genocide itself. And of course, we all know that you know, from its inception, the term genocide was a politicized term. Uh, unfortunately, you know, when we go back and try to understand, well, even try to understand contemporary events, you know, is it is it not genocide? are we limited to the definition of genocide or not? So I think that's a problem that really hangs over the Cambodian situation. We can see certain groups, you know, the, the Cham in particular, being targeted specifically. And, you know, those certainly do, and as the tribunal has uh, ruled, constitute genocide. More broadly, when we think about the famine, we think about the uh, the government uh, responses to the violence, the famine. Uh, it's a little bit more difficult. Um, we'll probably have to edit out some of this stuff because uh, this is this is a question that I've, I've wrestled with a lot in terms of how we ultimately come down on this. Um, let, let me pick up here. I think when trying to understand the relationship between famine and genocide in Cambodia is to understand the bifurcated nature of violence itself. I think when we look at the direct violence, when we look at the purges, when we look at the executions, we can see very clearly the, uh, the the practice of genocide as we legally understand that. In terms of the famine and the letting die of individuals, I think this was a collective violence. I don't think that it was deliberately targeting one group over the other. Now we can bring in the class divisions that the Khmer Rouge put in place between base people, new people versus uh, uh, cadre and so forth. But it was a collective violence. Uh, it wasn't experienced evenly. Uh, certain groups, uh, certain class groups within the country suffered more than others. But nobody was untouched by some of these conditions. And you know, 
when we talk about the intention, which is a crucial part of understanding uh, the, the criminality, particularly of genocide, what was the intention here? You know, did they intend to kill upwards of uh, a quarter of their population? I don't think so. Uh, what happened is that, you know, as they were trying to rebuild their country, people were dying. People were dying of diseases. People were, and we could talk about the health processes, certainly. People were dying of diseases. People were dying of, of famine. The Khmer Rouge were aware of it. They had an opportunity to address those, uh, and they chose not to. So in that sense, it was intentional. So it was intentionally letting them die uh, because at that point, their lives were disposable. They were expendable. And I, I think that this is actually one of the key lessons uh, that we can take away from this, that, uh, that when we understand premature death, and we look at it not from the standpoint, yeah, okay, somebody's going out and shooting somebody, that's wrong. But we're looking at somebody who is dying prematurely, somebody dying because they have lack of access to healthcare, they have lack of access to adequate food. These are not anonymous structures that just come into existence. These are intentional, deliberate choices put forward by our politicians. So if we have a politician, even, shall we say, in the United States, and they decline to provide health care to their citizens, that is an act of violence. Now, we don't typically see it as such, but we know that if we don't provide health care, if we don't provide adequate food for the people of, say, the United States, people are going to die. That is a, an avoidable form of violence, but the politicians choose not to. And so I think that there's some very uncomfortable parallels when we start to understand famine and genocide in the Khmer Rouge as an act of letting die, and what lessons we have when we look beyond the global south to, let's say, the global north, and how certain politicians might respond to their populations. That's a, an amazing answer and brings out all sorts of other things that we might want to touch on uh, at another time. Um, can we just sort of wrap up perhaps by sort of just asking a little bit about the international context, which you touched on when you were providing the, the, the sort of historical background for this? Um, as a case, and you talked about anti-colonialism, and you talked about the sort of French Indochina and, and, and that context, and the longer the longer history of, of the case. Um, um, but when we've sort of come to the violence, we we've talked a lot about it almost as an internal uh, affair that has that has this sort of wider context. But but can I just sort of ask you to tease out a little more the that international context uh, and perhaps say um, so how this this uh, genocide this violence fits into the very complex relations that are happening in the sort of early to mid seventies and into the late seventies so between for example China and the Soviet Union and the U.S and what's going on in Southeast Asia more broadly in that decade. And Vietnam, I think we'd want to sort of talk about Vietnam as a sort of post-colonial power as it, as it emerges in that decade as well. So yes, to understand the Cambodian genocide, uh, there, there's a great danger to view this as being wholly internal that somehow this was just simply Cambodians killing Cambodians and you know, that, that um, it, it's sort of devoid of any broader geopolitics. The reality is that what transpired in Cambodia in the 1970s is 
heavily conditioned by the broader U.S.-led war in Vietnam. And of course, the U.S. war in Vietnam was situated within the larger geopolitics of the Cold War. You know, I, I think it's important that the audience also recognizes that when we're talking about the Cold War, it isn't just simply the U.S. versus the Soviet Union, nor is it just simply the U.S. versus the Soviet Union and China. China and the Soviet Union did not get along. And so you all through this time period, you, you have these various uh, relations that ebb and flow between the United States, China, and Russia, and by extension, how that translates into East and West Germany, how it translates into France, because you know a lot of times the decisions that the United States might make with respect to Vietnam was more influenced by what's happening in, in, uh, in, in France itself. So more specifically, and to try to bring this to some sort of workable understanding. To understand how the Khmer Rouge ultimately emerged victorious in 1975 and why this communist movement is successful and how they emerged victorious in the Civil War has to do with the relationship between the United States and events within Vietnam. Vietnam, we know, was artificially divided uh, following the Geneva Convention of 1954 between North Vietnam and South Vietnam. That introduced a layer of complexity as you know, Cambodia, how they would relate to both North and South Vietnam, how the Soviet Union would relate to North and South Vietnam, how China would relate to North and South Vietnam, and even how the Khmer Rouge would relate to both North and South Vietnam. So what was happening at the time? The United States from the 1950s onward viewed Vietnam in its totality as a linchpin of its national security. And they felt that they needed to draw a line, particularly within this part of Southeast Asia. They did not care so much about what happens in North Vietnam. The main concern was to support a viable, independent, autonomous, sovereign South Vietnam. That was the objective. The objective of the United States was never to defeat North Vietnam. It was simply to prop up South Vietnam. Well, the problem with trying to maintain sovereignty is that you can have both internal subversion and you can have foreign aggression. In terms of internal subversion, that means we have to bring about insurgency activities and bringing in troops to you know, uh, be on the ground in South Vietnam. But in terms of foreign aggression, it has to do with solidifying the borders. And one of the most problematic borders that the United States had to defend was the Cambodian-Vietnamese border. And so US efforts through the 1950s, 1960s, and particularly into the 1970s, all hinged on this territorial strip, this border between Cambodia and South Vietnam. And that decidedly impacted how the United States related to Cambodia, which ultimately leads to Nixon's decision for the uh, illegal invasion of Cambodia, which really opens the door for the Vietnam conflict to spill over into Cambodia at that point. That further destabilized an already fragile economy and political system and opened the door for the, the Khmer Rouge under the Pol Pot faction to ultimately achieve victory. Were it not for US foreign aggression and a very myopic understanding of geopolitics on mainland Southeast Asia, I don't think the conditions would have warranted the Khmer Rouge ultimately coming to power. Well, this has been an absolutely fascinating discussion. Before we wrap it up, just one kind of final question. Is there just one last word you would like to leave us and the listeners? 
Well, I appreciate this opportunity. And I suppose if there's one final takeaway, uh, particularly for those who are thinking historically about genocides and our contemporary world and, and geopolitics, is to not necessarily confine ourselves to the legal definition of genocide. I think as we move forward through the 21st century, uh, genocide is going to assume various, very different forms, you know, and, and that, you know, we have to guard against letting a genocide continue to play out because we don't recognize it as such. We need to be open to the possibility that the 21st century genocide will not resemble the 20th century genocide. Ah, as a genocide study scholar, I find that a fascinating proposition and a, and a very wise one. Uh, well, thank you so much, Jim, for joining us today. It's been, as I said, an absolutely fascinating conversation. We really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today. So thank you so much. You have been listening to the Oddities of Violence podcast. Our podcast is produced and edited by Alejandra Vivas with support from the great team at CJSW. Join us for our next episode when we're exploring oddities in the philosophy of violence. We'll be looking at the political thought of German emigre Eric Vogelin, whose work on the magical powers of violence can help us understand terrorism and genocide as a fantastical bridge between our worlds of meaning and reality. Our guest then will be Barry Cooper, our colleague in the Department of Political Science here at the University of Calgary. And your host will be Josh Goldstein. Thanks for listening, everyone. Until next time.